So I want to just ask you to take your Bible tonight and turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 9 and 10. Guys, you probably have read this so many times, but I just want to bring something tonight. Um, the title of my message is this, He Makes Wars to Cease. He Makes Wars to Cease. And I really believe that God has given me an assignment tonight to bring a word that will help bring some of you out of a veritable battle. You've been struggling, you've been tormented, you've been in the midst of spiritual warfare, hard and difficult conflict, and God wants to bring you through. He wants to make wars to cease. So Psalm 46, 9 and 10 says this, He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spirit. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let's just pray. Father, we welcome you to come by your Holy Spirit tonight. We welcome your presence and your anointing. Lord, I pray that everything that you want to be shared tonight would be communicated in a way that would connect with the hearts of your children. I pray for revelation. I pray, Father, for anointing and just a sense of your freedom in this house, Lord. We pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and move powerfully tonight for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I mean, I don't know about you, but as I've shared a little bit about my journey, I remember when I first came to the Lord and how I just began to hunger after God. You know, I, I had this encounter with the Lord, and I was discipled in, in a way that basically I was told, if you want to see miracles, if you want to see breakthrough, if you want to overcome the enemy, if you want to overcome sin in your life, you've got to have a relationship with God. And that means you've got to spend time in prayer. And so at, at a very young age in my walk with God, really from the very outside, I began to pray. I would get up early in the morning. I'd go to work sometimes 12 or 15 hours, but I'd still get up very early in the morning, and I'd just pray, and I'd cry out to God, and I just kept you know, thirsting after the Lord and hungering after Him, and, and I just couldn't get enough of His presence, enough of Him. And as a result of the times that I was spending with the Lord, I began to have these encounters with the Lord where Jesus spoke to me and actually appeared to me several times. And then he told me, he said, I've called you to preach the gospel. I've, I've set you apart from your mother's womb, and this is what you're destined to do. And then he began to give me specific instructions. And I hadn't gone to Bible school. I didn't know too much, but I, I had this, you know, just this voracious appetite for the word of God and, and for his presence. And as we began to minister, and, and we were actually living in the most uh, crime-ridden, difficult city in Canada, it was known as Bomb City, okay? That's how bad it was. And we lived in the worst part of, the, of this city, literally in the worst part. God sent us there. And we began to go out into homes and minister on the streets and pray. And we started to see amazing miracles take place. And we began to gather believers into home meetings. And we began to pray and teach and disciple them and worship them. And we saw the glory of God come into these homes in the midst of these very dark places so that even 
four-year-old children were being baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, out under the power of the Holy Spirit. It was just such an incredible thing, and we would go out into the streets, and a revival broke out, and literally we had over 80 people showing up in this one house meeting. People who had never known Jesus, who'd never heard the gospel before. And we began to you know, say, okay, what are we going to do with them? And so we, we ended up, the church that we were connected to actually had a bus. I don't know if they had that in Australia. The big thing in North America at one point was the bus ministry, right? And you send a bus out and pick everybody up and take them to church. So they had a bus and they picked them up and take them to church and just to see them baptized and, and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful move of God. And that was really my first encounter in ministry. Then I went to Bible college. And more people were backslidden in Bible college. And had no heart for the Lord, but was like, I just got to go here. You know, my parents want me to go here. They, whatever it may be. And this is a spirit-filled Bible college. And there was a few of us, a remnant. And we began to gather on a regular basis, we would pray and fast, and at noontime, you know, during lunch, we would come together and we would pray, and God began to speak to us, and he began to show us. He said, I've got, I'm going to do amazing things. I'm going to use you guys, and you're going to go forth around the world. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to see signs and wonders and miracles, and you're going to even raise the dead. These were some of the prophetic words. And as we stepped out of Bible school into ministry and the Lord opened doors, and then we began to encounter opposition, resistance for people that really didn't want to see that. They really didn't believe in that. They were happy just going to church whenever. And for me, I just didn't understand that. God had done such an amazing work in my life. I just didn't understand that. Why, why don't you want to pray? Why don't you want to reach others with the gospel? Went through a period of time ministering, doing the things that God had called me to do. And probably about 10 years ago, during a time when God was really using us to, to see a lot of miracles and healings and people set free and delivered, I just came into this season where it just seemed like I was just under a constant barrage of attacks. Guys, I, I, don't, I can't get into all the details, but it was so dark and it was so evil. The things that were happening, I was getting emails and my life was being threatened and, and, and incredible things were happening and I would go to sleep at night and I'd wake up in the, in the wee hours of the morning and I couldn't breathe and it was demonic spirits were attacking me and I went through this and you know my, my philosophy at that time and it was really predicated on a, a skewed theology was that hey, I must be doing something right because the enemy's coming against me, right? And the more anointed you are and the more damage you're doing to his kingdom, the bigger you know, the bullseye is on your back. And, and that's not, that's not uh, obviously untrue, but the Lord began to speak to me because it was so intense, there was no relief, 
There was no reprieve, and it was to the point that, guys, I mean, I was feeling it mentally and emotionally and physically, and I actually had a stroke in my 40s. And I went to the hospital, and they said, oh, yeah, you had a stroke, and, and I was numb on my, one side of my body, and I couldn't. I couldn't, you know, do, I couldn't feel things. And I'm going through all this, and I'm just like, this is crazy. And so we would leave. I left the hospital, and I remember Lynn and I, we, they just said, hey, this is what you need to do. Just basically take this medicine and watch yourself and, if it, you know, monitor your symptoms very closely. It wasn't a severe stroke. It was quite mild. But what ends up happening is, you know, we'd go out, and we're sitting in a restaurant eating food, and, and then I would feel in my body the numbness would come on me. And guys, that was like panic. I never, I never dealt with that in my life. I'm not the type of person that, you know, I never really dealt with anxiety, but this panic just came upon me. And I was like, what is this? What is this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to go back to the hospital. I, and, and then I would pray, and then we'd pray, and then... And then it would subside. A few days later, it came back. A few days later, it came back. And the enemy was just messing with my mind, as you could imagine, what he was doing with me. And remember, people were shocked. People say, what is going on? What happened to you? And then we began to see other things take place where just the enemy was just wrecking havoc in our family and, and doing things and in different ways, and, and it just seemed that we were just in this place where we constantly, I mean, unmitigated, there was absolutely no break. It just went on and on and on pretty much for a whole year without any type of relief. I began to say, Lord, what is this? And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Son, this is not my will. See, my theology was, hey, the more dangerous you are to the devil, the more you're going to get attacked, right? Makes sense. But what had happened was, guys, I was not victorious. The enemy was prevailing in my life. And I was constantly distracted by what was happening. I mean, we go to minister in a church in America, wake up on a Sunday morning, and the whole side of my face is drooped. I had no health issues. And the Lord just began to speak to me, and he said, the enemy has come against you, and you've not been diligent to quell his attacks. Son, I received no glory from you being constantly assaulted from the enemy. A.W. Tozer wrote a book. It's an amazing book. It's called Talk Back to the Devil, and the subtitle is The Fighting Fervor of the victorious Christian. Here's what A.W. Tozer said. 
I've had times in my life in ministry when the burdens and the pressures seemed to be too much. On my knees, I've been given freedom and strength to pray. Now, Lord, I have had enough of this. I refuse to take any more of this heaviness and oppression. This does not come from God. This comes from my enemy, the devil. Lord, in Jesus' name, I will not take it any longer. Through Jesus Christ, I am victor. At these times, Tozer said, great burdens have just melted and rolled away all at once. Hallelujah. Come on, give Jesus Then Tozer said this, brethren, don't you love that, brethren? Brethren, God never meant for us to be kicked around like a football. He wants us to be humble and let him do the chastening when necessary. But when the devil starts tampering with you, dare to resist him. So, we know Ephesians 6, 12, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? Principalities and powers. We're in a spiritual conflict. We get that. We understand that. But you guys know that the scripture also says when you walk in a place of intimacy and surrender to God, he makes wars to cease in your life. You see, the devil is greater than you. He is more powerful than you. You're not a match for him. But the Christ in you is greater than him. And until we come to the revelation of knowing that he is the God that breaks the bow, that makes wars to cease, and brings us into a place of peace, we'll constantly allow ourselves to be battered around by the enemy. The Lord began to show me some scriptures. Look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, speaking of David. 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 11, the Lord says to David, and I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Wow. Jehoshaphat, how many remember him? He was a king that loved the Lord. If you read 2 Chronicles 17, it talks about how he honored the Lord. He walked in the ways of David. He, he rid the land of, of idolatry. And, and he sought the Lord with all of his heart is what it says. And the Bible continues and tells us in 2 Chronicles 17.10 that as a result of his consecration and his life that was fully surrendered to Jesus, that the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. They were afraid to make war 
against Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles 20, verses 29 and 30, speaking again of King Jehoshaphat, and the fear of God was in all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Now, I want to point our attention to the words of Jesus. Remember when he spoke in Matthew chapter 16. He said, you know, upon this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, what? Shall not, what? Prevail. Now, very interesting. The thing that we know about gates, of course, is the intention of gates is to keep people out. In other words, they are defensive in nature. They're to fortify, they're to secure, they are to prevent someone from, from moving forward. So gates represent the authority of the enemy, his government, of course, his kingdom. But ultimately, what we understand is that the power or the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It will not prevail against God's ecclesia. And what we need to understand here is that when the Bible talks about this, it literally is using a word that speaks about how these, uh, this, this word prevail has the idea, the connotation, really, of someone who overcomes because they're superior in strength. And Jesus is saying that the enemy will not overcome you because he's not superior in strength. And so we have to recognize that we are the ones that are to do major damage to the kingdom of darkness. We are the ones that are called to go forth to advance the kingdom. We are the ones that are called to repel the powers of darkness. We are the ones that are to chase the devil. Not the other way around. And when I look at the lives of great men and women of God, look at Jesus, look at Paul. We don't see them, even though they were persecuted and even though they went through hardship and difficulty, we don't see them losing their faith. We don't see them shutting down emotionally or spiritually and and being so distracted by the enemy that they're not able to do what God wants them to do. Yes, there's a season when that happens, but ultimately they were able to press through what the enemy was doing and prevail. It's important that we understand the very word salvation in the New Testament, soteria. If you really study this closely, what it means is this, freedom from the harassment of an enemy. Salvation, soteria, freedom from the harassment of an enemy. Luke chapter 1, verse 74 and 75 says that when Messiah comes, he would deliver God's people from the hand of our enemies. Listen to this. So we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. We might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. What an amazing God that we serve. We can recognize that there is a place in him, where the enemy trembles at who we are. Come on, guys. Remember 
the seven sons of Sceva, when they, they, they approached this man who was demonized, and they said, you know what, this guy Paul's going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus, let's give it a go. So they walk up to this man and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we command you, we adjure you, come out of that man. And the demons reply and say, Paul we know, and Jesus we know. Who are you? We know who Paul is. But ultimately, Paul was a conqueror. Paul was a conqueror. There's a place, guys, where God wants to bring you to a, re- a place of rest. Listen, it's being a spiritual nomad is not God's intention. God wants to bring you into a place of rest where you settle, you put down roots. We're called trees or oaks of righteousness. I don't know what you guys call them here, but in Texas we have something called a tumbleweed. If you've watched any cowboy movies, just rolls down the street, the tumbleweed. We're not tumbleweeds. We're called to have deep roots. We're called to be rooted and grounded in Him. And we are called to be able to flourish in the place that God establishes in Christ and in a community of faith so that we can do what he's called us to do, that we can complete our assignment, that we can make our kingdom contribution, and we can overcome the powers of darkness and live a life of holiness and righteousness free from the harassment of the enemy all the days of our life. So the Lord says, Glenn, what you're going through is not my will. You need to deal with this. You need to shut it down. You have the authority. You have the power. And I'm like, wow. Like, I just was like, okay, this is a season. You know, I'm like, I'll push through it. Like, for me, I'm much more gracious now. But back in the day, if somebody came to me for counseling... As pastoral as I was back then, my response is, suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) Okay? Have you prayed? Have you fasted? I mean, are you living in sin? Like, if you are, then don't waste my time. (laughs) The Lord began to speak to me. He said, you need to engage in warfare. You need to push back. You need to contend. It's your place to overcome the enemy. It's your place to make a decision that I'm not going to allow him to just batter me around. I'm not going to be his football. I am going to overcome him. And when he pushes me, I'm going to push back harder. And I realize that what he's doing... Is, is only temporary and he's very limited in his uh, reach and his impact upon my life. But one of the things that we, we need to understand regarding spiritual warfare is that sometimes we can be engaging the right enemy, but we're using the wrong weapons. 
I remember a time when, when I heard that Israel was actually providing weapons for China, selling weapons to China. And someone asked in this article, why would you do that? Like, guys, aren't you afraid they're going to use these weapons against you? They said, we know the capability of these weapons. We know what these weapons are able to do. And there's a sense in which, guys, we have to recognize that the enemy ultimately is limited. And we are not to be ignorant of his schemes or his devices. We're to understand the way he operates and what he does. But we have to respond with the proper weaponry and the right strategies and tactics. You see, in this passage, when he says that he's the God that causes wars to cease, that he's the God that, that breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns chariots in the fire, the next thing he says to us is be still and know that I'm God. In other words, the key to experiencing him as the God that brings wars to an end in our life is knowing him as the God in whom we walk with in a personal and intimately way. And, and here's what I'm trying to say. It actually says there's two things involved. First of all, be still. The word be still literally means stop striving, stop trying to do it on your own. The New American literally says cease striving. It's not about human effort. It's not about trying to do it on your own. In fact, very interestingly, and we'll see this, when you, when you look at the Hebrew language, he actually says, let down your hands. And it, it, the idea in the book of Nehemiah, it's actually used, the same Hebrew word is used. It says they were so weak that they couldn't even lift up their hands. And God says, that's what I want you to be. When it comes to your own effort, your own attempts, forget it. Cease striving. But then he continues, and he says, and no." that I'm God. It's not enough just to see striving. Well, hey, you know what? I'm not trying to fight this on my own. God knows my address. God knows what I'm going through. No, no. There's a command here to actually know he, him as God, to know that he's God. Very interesting. The word is yada. And yada is a very interesting term in the Old Testament. It's used, three specific references here I want to show you. In Genesis 4, verse 1, it says that Adam knew Eve. It's that word, yada. Okay? In Genesis 18, 19, it says that God knew Abraham. And in talking about Abraham, it says, For I have known him, I have yada him. Some translation says I've chosen him. It's the word yada. And then lastly, Moses, when he's on top of... When he's with God in God's presence, remembering the Lord said, I'm not going to bring you up. I'm not going to take you into the promised land. I'll, I'll send an angel, and the angel will bring you in. And then Moses is like, no deal, God, unless your presence goes with us. Don't show us. Like, don't take us up. It's, it's not, it's not going to work. And then what ends up happening is Moses cries out in Exodus 33, 13, and he asks the Lord to teach him his ways so that he may know him, that he may yada him. When was the last time you said to the Lord, I want to know you? Yeah. Philippians 3.10, Paul who had raised the dead, 
who preached the gospel around the world, saw so many miracles, says, I want to know him and the power of the resurrection. I want to know him. The idea here, guys, is it speaks of a covenant relationship. It's always referring to covenant relationship. It's amazing when the Holy Spirit wants to convey a particular message or theme. He seems to repeat it. And this morning, Pastor Corey mentioned several times covenant, the covenant relationship, the covenant relationship. And I was like, God is speaking to us. Guys, he's calling us to that place where we walk with him as his friends. You know, the Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. That's a covenant term. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 14. He said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I've commanded you. Then in the next verse, he said, I no longer regard you as servants, but I call you friends. This is servant isn't privy. A servant isn't knowledgeable of his master's dealings, his affairs. So the calling to us is to be part of this covenant family and to be the friend of God. And he says, I will share my secrets with you. I will reveal my strategies. I will tell you what you need to know. And I was so busy just trying to do what I thought was right, so tuned into this distorted theological belief that, you know, I was going through this because it was God's will that I suffer. It was God's will that, that I have to go through this and learn some things. And, and God was showing me, this is not my will. This is not what I desire for your life. And by the way, I've never had a stroke since that time again, and I've never had a symptom. Within like a few weeks, it was completely gone. When we got the revelation, God was saying, press into me, know me. You want to experience me as the God that brings wars to an end. If you're going through adversity tonight, if you, if you feel tormented, if the enemy is afflicting you, and there's just something happening in your life, and you're just not able to get free, or you just see him harassing your family, or there's an addiction that you just can't walk clean from, then I want you to know tonight the answer is not in trying to beat it on your own by your own strength, your own human effort. See striving and know that he is God. Yada, that he is God. Know him in this personal, intimate way. Cry out to him. God, I want to know you. The more I partake of the revival meetings, the hungrier I get for God. And I just say, Lord, there's more, there's more. I want to know you. I want to know you more. I want to experience more of you. And I remember the first church that we pastored. We were very young. You talk about zeal without knowledge. And back in those days, like, no one mentored you. It was like, here you go. Let me tell you, the school of hard knocks is overrated. <laughs> Find someone to mentor you. <laughs> it helps. And so what I knew was like, okay, God, there's a lot of things I don't know. And I, I I'm honestly have no idea what I'm doing, but I know you can help me. And I know that 
all the riches of glory are hidden in Christ. I know that all things that I need are in you. And so I'm just going to seek you. I'm just going to spend time seeking you. And I'm going to pour over the scriptures. And I'm going to spend time in prayer. And so every day I would spend three to five hours in prayer. And then one day a week I'd spend 16 hours in prayer. And then things began to happen in our church. The glory cloud actually came into the building and people started falling out under the power of the Spirit. People that were demonized began to get set free. People that were living in sin began to cry out and say literally this, what must I do to be saved? While I'm preaching, they're standing up and saying, I'm going to go to hell. I'm lost. What do I do to be saved? And God began to move. And can I just tell you that the local church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints heard what was going on because some of their members were coming in, getting saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. So they sent two of their best missionaries to convert me. So I began to pray and ask the Lord. I read a book, How to Respond. And so I, I said, let's meet, let's talk. So they came into my office I wasn't, like, those guys are like 21 years old. You know, they come from Salt Lake City, Utah, in America. And some of them are younger. And I wasn't much older. I was like 23. And I just was like, there's no way. You're going to, you guys don't realize what you're walking into. This is a setup. They're like, we're going to get you, we're going to convert you to Mormonism. And I'm like, no, you're going to get saved. I feel with the Holy Spirit. And they're looking at me, they're like, no way. I said, yeah, it's going to happen today. So they begin to ask me all their questions. They go through their, you know, their approach. They have a way that they, they appeal. And then, then I just began to, like, just boom, 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 boom. Every argument. Like, I just was, like, smashing everything. And they looked at me, and they're like, what? I said, okay, now let me pray for you. And one of the guys starts weeping. And I, I lay my hand on him in my office. And this Mormon, who's like 20 years old, that says elder such and such with his nice white shirt and black tie and his badge goes out under the power of the Holy Spirit <laughs> in my office. And the other guy, he looks and he goes like, what? Well, guess what? They shipped him back to Salt Lake City, Utah. And a new elder showed up. What's good for the gooses. So we continue. Guys, almost the whole Mormon church got saved. We saw such incredible glory, such amazing miracles. And the presence was so thick, so strong. When I look back at that, like, guys, I don't think there was a single person in our church when we got there that was hungry for the things of the Spirit. That's what it was like. It was very, very traditional. Like, they even told me, like, I was there for, like, two weeks, and the elders walked up to me and said, I, I see you're preaching in a certain way, and we just want to let you know that this is a community church. We're not Pentecostal. And I said, well, Jesus is. 
<laughs> Holy Spirit is. Like, not denominationally, of course. I mean, power of the Holy Spirit, right? And they just looked at me. And one of the men in the church who had been in the church for 28 years, he looked at me and he walked into my office one day, in fact. I remember it was a very hot day. We were in the drought. He walked into my office and he said, what you're doing, I don't like it, young man. He was in his 70s. And he said, I'm telling you, my mission is to get you out of this church. That's what he told me. And I said, if God wills, I'll leave. But if God wills, you'll leave. Like I said, zeal without knowledge. <laughs> he said, do you know my wife is having nightmares at night? I said, nightmares? He goes, I said, what? What's going on? I said, we can pray for her. He goes, no, no. She's waking up and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus. And she says, I just don't feel like I'm even saved. And you know how I responded If the shoe fits, wear it. That was my response. Like he said, like I said, I'm going to get you out of this church. Guys, he had been in that church for 28 years. Three months later, he walked up to me in my office, and he said this. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, my wife and I, we sold our farm and we're moving to another city. And I looked at him and he said, I have no idea why we're doing this, but you won. After 28 years, the guy lived in that community since he was like raised, born and raised there. And after 28 years, he left I want to tell you, those who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. This season we're living in is like what we're seeing happening in different places in Asbury and other places. Guys, it's, it's God's invitation to his people. Come and seek me. Come and follow me. Seek my face. I, I want to bring you to... To a place of intimacy where you know me. Where you walk with me. And anything you're going through, no matter what it may be in the natural, God is calling you to a place of deeper consecration. To seek his face. To go hard after him. To pursue his presence. To say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you more and more. I'm so hungry for you. Show me your glory. Show me your presence. Yada, to know someone personally and intimately. To walk with him. Even as Jesus walked, right? As Enoch walked with God. Where nothing else matters. I just got to seek him. And we sit around, some of us, and I've been there in my own walk with God, where I'm just, what's going on? God, don't you care? Where are you? 
Why is this happening? And I just try to push through it, just try to endure under it. And the Lord says, no, seek me. Walk with me. Get to know me. And you will experience me as the God who makes wars to cease. Secondly, the word yada is also translated yada. If I was going to subtitle this message, I'd probably call it yada, yada, yada. But Because <laughs> I do have a third yada. All right. So, but I just got up and said yada, yada, yada. No. Okay. But the point is, okay, you ready? Let's get seriously now. Okay. God... Yada, know him, right? But there's another word that's translated yada, which literally speaks of worship. In fact, remember in, in um, 2 Chronicles 20, it says, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever, right? Of course, we know there's different words in that passage, but that's yada. The idea is it's derived from the Hebrew word yad, which means hand. And your hand, when they're lifted up, literally symbolizes worship. So yada in that sense means a specific type of worship that has to do with when your hands are raised. And when your hands are raised, it's a sense in which you're reaching out for God, but you're worshiping God. And when we continue to worship him in that sense, that we press into his presence and, and we, we begin to live in that place of intimacy with him, but then there comes a point, guys, where we just have to go for it in worship. Look, your walk with God combined with your worship of God becomes your weapon. It becomes your warfare. It's very interesting that, that the word that is translated yad or yada also can be used about throwing a spear. It can be used about shooting an arrow. It is used, in fact, in the Old Testament. And the idea here is that God is saying, look, there's a place in me, where you begin to step into that deeper place of worship. Sometimes it's prolonged worship. We're going to worship God tonight. We've been worshiping, but we're going to worship God at a place tonight where we're going to experience breakthrough. Things are going to break off. The power of the enemy is going to be broken over people's lives tonight. And you've been like, God, I'm praying. God, I'm praying. But we need to go to that place of protracted and prolonged and deep worship with God. And as we go after him in that sense, he begins to shift things in our lives. There are two examples of this in, in the Old Testament. Of course, 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat was told you know, that Judah was to go first. And the idea, of course, is as they worshiped God, then the enemy, began, the, the enemy was defeated. In fact, it says that they began to attack one another. And it's very interesting. Can you imagine this? The word yada speaks about if shooting an arrow... And so what happens is there's three different, here's Mount Seir, Moab, and Ammon. And then what takes place is like two of them turn on one. They're all Israel's enemy, but two turn on one. So it's kind of like this. As they are worshiping God, it's like, boom, somebody gets like, what was that? They get hit by an arrow, and they're like, why did you do that? That's friendly fire. And they turn around and say, it wasn't me. And then they begin to turn on one another, but it was the arrow of the Lord. It was God releasing his arrows. You have no idea what happens in the spirit realm when you worship God in that place of abandonment, 
of surrender, of persevering and pushing through. You have no idea what happens. Of course, Exodus 17, here we see Moses. Joshua is fighting the Amalekites. And Moses, of course, has got the, the rod of God in his hand. That, and when he raises it up, then Israel is prevailing. But when his hands become weary, then the, Amal the Amalekites or Amalek begins to prevail. So we see Aaron and her come and they, they literally put his hand, they lift up his hands and they hold it in place. And then what begins to take place is they're in a position of yada, hands lifted up, then they begin to prevail. There's a place of worship that God wants to take us. I can tell you that one of the things the Lord taught me when I was first starting out in ministry was how to worship and pray until I saw a miracle take place. And there was a particular situation that I was dealing with, and it was, it was a situation in which the enemy had gotten a hold of someone and, and was really working in their lives and had, had literally deceived them and turned them away from the Lord. And the Lord showed me, he said, you need to go to war. You need to pray. You need to begin to worship. You need to begin to declare and decree things until you see it shift. And I remember the day I got up early in the morning and I prayed and I worshiped God and I thanked God for the victory and I told the enemy to take his hands off and I kept worshiping and declaring the goodness of God and about three hours later, I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, it's done. And right after that, the person came back and said, I don't know what happened to me? What, what came over me? I don't know how that could have happened to me, but I was so wrong. I repent, and they came back to God. And guys, some of us have been praying for people, for loved ones, for situations, for years, and nothing. Look, I'm not here to condemn anyone, but I'm here to say there's a place of breakthrough worship. There's a place of breakthrough worship. There's a place where we begin to see the, the power of God, the power of his angel armies released to do warfare on our behalf and bring the enemy to a place of defeat. God has called us to that victory. Proverbs 16, 7. Let's ask the worship team to come, please. Proverbs 16, 7 says this. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace. Peace is a covenant term. Romans 16, 20 says this. May the God of peace crush Satan shortly under your faith. Some countries have a policy we don't negotiate with terrorists. Many of us have nego been negotiating with Satan. How does this God of peace give us peace? He crushes yeah. 
Satan under your feet. 